0: It's remarkable how, despite having gone through these sort of big shifts towards science and so forth, that stories can still be used to draw people into ways of looking at the world without a lot of evidence.
1: This is the Wicked Problems Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ostrike. Today, I'm sitting down with Susie Waldman. Susie is a contributor to the second book by the Wicked Problems Collaborative. What do we do after the pandemic? Susie, could you introduce yourself?
0: Oh, sure. Yes. So I do research for a government department, which is interested in communication and interested in using stories to communicate. So I'm doing a lot of research on narrative and my background is also in English literature. So it's kind of my Home base in terms of uh, understanding the world is, is understanding how people use narrative. So but I'm working on that generally. How, how are narratives structured? How are narratives used as a research topic?
1: I'm a co-founder of an effort called the Circular Design Lab that teaches systemic design to community members. We have people share their perspective of a challenge in narrative form in small groups. Once each person has had the chance to tell the story of the challenge from their perspective, the group then works to develop a shared narrative that they use as a foundation for investigating the challenge.
0: I think that sounds like a great process. I've heard of that kind of process. And um, I mean, the nice thing about it is the involvement of different perspectives. And I think it's quite a sophisticated process. There was a Literary critic in the 40s and 50s, I believe Mikhail Bakhtin. He was in Russia and he talked about dialogism as a very high form of literature. You see it in Victorian novels and Dostoevsky was one of the greats as a dialogic novelist. Unfortunately, most of our stories are not that dialogic. Right there, the the original story format is fairly, I think, monological. It's it's sort of somebody telling a story, an epic of I went here and I went there and there were monsters or beasts, you know, and, and, and and villains and heroes. And it's, it's usually from one point of view. And I feel like that's the most, that's the original form of narrative that we're all quite used to. And that still is quite captivating to us. Um, We get quite sucked into. Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, trying to proliferate, you know, perspectives and, and see a story from a, from different points of view has always been considered a pretty high form of art. And, and it's a pretty high form of politics as well. And it's one we don't, we don't achieve that often.
1: You made me think of something related. Something I try to get across when working on these challenges is to get rid of the idea of the hero. To stop thinking of yourself as the person that's going to solve the problem and just think of yourself as one piece of the puzzle. Coming together with all these people that have other knowledge, different expertise, and knowledge of the circumstances, those sorts of things. And just trying to fit the puzzle pieces together rather than trying to solve it yourself. I think it's an interesting way to look at things.
0: Well, that's kind of the ideal. I I mean, you're probably familiar with Habermas, Jürgen Habermas, the German public sphere theorist. And his idea was that democracy is fundamentally people coming with different types of expertise and and knowledge and experience and witness and coming together and talking to each other and sharing. And then the point was, is you know, they're supposed to be, again, dialogue so that the And that people were supposed to, you know, ask each other questions and the best answers and the best solutions and the best accounts were supposed to prevail amongst us because we were supposed to be rational, right? And I feel like that has been dramatically tested, you know, almost as a paradigm shift in the last 10 years where social psychologists came out and said, you know, we actually don't work like that. It doesn't happen according to that idea why and kind of going into these deep questions about how we're how we're wired to to not do that very well right have difficulty
1: well why don't we go on to your chapter of the book can you give us a high level overview of what the chapter was about and what you were trying to get at
0: well I think it really touches on the same questions um where you know we encounter the news as a lot of stories a lot of narratives and even though journalism is supposed to give us different points of view for the most part we tend to get one perspective at a time in our in our media and um, and they've noticed with social media in particular that people tend to silo so they're getting the same perspective over and over again and that people enjoy that and they find it very gratifying to to hear that that people like themselves people with common mindsets like themselves telling this the story in, in the way that's familiar and comfortable and reassuring and um and but that sort of it doesn't give us good information I mean it gives us good it gives us cohesion as communities and I think that's the thing there's a kind of conflict between the, the some of the this is some of that social psychology that proposed that a lot of our beliefs are really sort of worked well in, in a tribal context where it's really good for the group if everybody shares the same belief. It's good for you know a, an army if everybody sees the, the enemy the same way. And you could see how that could be the prevailing army, right? The prevailing warriors, the prevailing clan could be the one with the most black and white perspective that makes them, you know, the most <laughs> on the right side and the enemies the most on the wrong side. They They might indeed win in a sort of Darwinian survival of the fittest competition. So our stories, a lot of them go back in time to periods that were pretty bloody where where you needed to survive in these kind of clan-on-clan warfare. But in, in a really complex world, as we live in, where our cultures are touching up against each other more closely and intermixing that classic forms of story and the ones that we still encounter in the media, and that often we still choose in our media usage, where we just get to see one perspective played out over and over again, I think are, are very uh, damaging and are hampering our ability to handle and deal with complex problems.
1: I think that fits in well with Paul Fidalgo's chapter he's basically questioning, is the American public so divided as to have irreconcilable differences? Is there a way to get from this place where we kind of have separated realities almost? How do you move forward from this place where you have these filter bubbles, where people are getting these messages repeatedly hammered in that say that what you believe is true and what the other group believes isn't?
0: I guess I just think, you know, it's helpful to me to just accept that those were, at some point in history, useful ways of thinking about probably and now they're not so how do we get how do we adapt really as as humans (laughs) to the new more interdependent type of reality right where we share resources all of us not not just battle for resources and so forth so i mean i think i don't know if there's i don't know if it's going to work i don't know if we're going to be able to adapt. It's not about, it's not that we're evil or that some groups are evil, right? Which is a story. I think it's that we're, we are dealing with wiring. And then the, and I don't know where that wiring comes from. I don't know if it's like genetic or just cultural, but we are dealing with a wiring that privileges certain types of, of information exchange that is, I think, quite primitive and, and obsolete. And that's information exchange in the form of the story, unfortunately. So, and there's been, you know, attempts to mediate that, like science and philosophy, which story is very subjective. I saw this happen. This is a concern for my group. Whereas philosophy tries to highly generalize, you know, this is what everybody will experience in a given situation. This is the common ground or science. You know, this is what we do. This is what we see if we don't care, if we don't care about the outcome and we just make ourselves into machines and reproduce the experiment over and over again so their attempt to get out of out of that desire the new story your own your own good and your group's good you know that came with enlightenment big moments in history millennial history like you know, the age of reason and so forth but it, the problem is i don't i just don't think that those you know philosophy and science have ever really taken over what it is to be human and really deeply penetrated into our beings sufficiently to really kinda of animate. They contest against the narrative approach, but they they don't we haven't become rational humans, just magically, just by a few people and you know, and a few, you know, I guess a few disciplines trying to cultivate these other approaches.
1: You reminded me of when I was in business school many years ago. I had an econ professor who was telling us about rational actors and how we all optimize for ourselves and everyone else is made better by this. I raised my hand and said, so the idea is that everyone here is going to make rational decisions every single time and that's why our economy is optimized. Yes. Well, pretty certain things don't work that way. He said, well, why is that? Well, I assure you that I'm not rational all the time. It just seems like a crazy notion that the entire story of our economy is based on the idea that human beings are rational and can make rational decisions in all sorts of circumstances.
0: Well, I think the idea that, yeah, that the rationality of different individual actors is going to turn into a collective rationality just seems very wrong because, I mean, we can be, you know, we might be individually rational about our ability to aggregate goods for ourselves and survive, but it doesn't lead to distribution, like, that's going to be sustainable, right? Yeah.
1: Let's talk a little more about story. What is it that's interesting to you, or or what are you learning about? Take it wherever you like.
0: I think that it's remarkable how, despite having gone through these sort of big epochal shifts towards science and so forth, that stories can still be used to draw people into ways of looking at the world without a lot of evidence, right? So we've seen the compelling... Ability of people to, you know, to craft a story that say COVID nineteen was invented, you know, to, you know, to subdue populations in favor of some vague internationalist agenda, inject things in their arms. Like they don't have, there's no evidence, right, that anybody's ever found. They they can find maybe they can find, a you know, a signal, right. I was reading about how does Q and I operate. You put sort of signs out there. You put breadcrumbs out there and you sort of get people to follow down that path. But none of these indications of a grand conspiracy around COVID nineteen, like in how it was at least made and introduced, are, you know, can stand up to very much scrutiny, right? So you just it's really the pleasure of eating those breadcrumbs and and putting a story together and being part of a collect community that's putting a story together that is pretty people pretty, pretty much agree is behind those you know, QAnon and, and effects like that so um and, and I, I found that I find that surprising you know because I just I feel my approach and perhaps I'm you know giving myself too much credit is you know when I come across a bit of information I just I try to see does do other people agree with this bit of information how many people agree with this bit of information um you know where? What's the source of this bit of information? I think I do this kind of stuff habitually, and it's surprising that we don't all do that. And certainly, we don't do it all the time. And I feel like uh, you know the Russians have been known about this. They've been practicing the art of propaganda for more than a hundred years through the various regimes, and so they have sort of honed well the ability to use stories to create feelings and heighten up. Beliefs to the point where people can become very, very angry or very, very sort of against a certain person or against a certain leader because of stories where there's not much evidence, and they know that people don't care that much about evidence. Really, what they really enjoy is the excitement and that the sense that the world makes sense in a simple kind of way that a story, a good story, can give you. I think that the use of stories for for propaganda purposes and you know we call it disinformation and we can call it information operations especially when one country is operating against another country to and there's you know very good evidence that Russia has been introducing a lot of stories or amplifying a lot of stories in other countries media spheres and social media spheres in order to weaken those countries in order to create divisions amongst the people in those countries amplify those divisions maybe have countries like our own, maybe not be healthy because not enough people are taking vaccines because people are lapping up, you know, say conspiracy theories about vaccines. So you can really weaken other populations through the right kind of narrative warfare. And I feel that I, my experiences is that other groups have been able to pick up these strategies and learn from these strategies. And so we're just seeing it happening everywhere, right? That different groups and some political parties are using these tactics of using story to basically mobilize people in certain directions, and that people don't care if there's not not much evidence behind the stories; they enjoy the stories themselves. And I think the stories must supply missing types of meaning and missing types of hope that maybe people are you know at a loss for in their lives. And so it's it's just it's very. It's almost like food, that's what I talk about in my narrative. It's like taking somebody starving and giving them a bunch of potato chips, right? and then they they're gonna feel fantastic, but it's not necessarily going to give them a long life.
1: I just wrote an article for a magazine, and part of what I was talking about there was how there's this opportunity for people who want to use this information. We' kind of have a perfect storm where we were already dealing with climate change and other major challenges. And then we added the pandemic, and it sort of compounded everything. And you've got social media as this forum where it just seems so easy for people to sow division, and it feels like it really isn't being addressed. That's what my chapter was about. I looked a little at the problems and the causes, but the important question is, what can we do about it? I suggested a two-pronged approach with better controls in place on the platform side, paired with better individual ability to determine the validity of the things we're reading. I also suggested this was important enough to be right there with the three hours of reading, writing, and arithmetic. To me, it's just that important for people to be able to better adjust information than the way things are right now. Because we're just creating problems all over the place where people aren't able to manage that information in productive ways.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. There's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different angles we can take on trying to counteract Misinformation and disinformation, and yeah, media literacy is is a big one. And I think it's probably going to be most effective in young people, and even in our among our own children. You know, just that we can raise. I think the next generation. I think they're already on the way to being able to handle complexity. This is a topic you and I have discussed. Um, complexity, meaning we don't know what's happening exactly, and there might not actually be any clear answers as to what's happening. And so looking for a simple solution or a singular solution is just barking up the wrong tree and expecting it to be delivered from a certain point of view. It's probably, it's a mistake. I think think the next generation understands that better. I'm hopeful that my kids who are immersed in social media and you know and the internet for, for their whole lives get that it's a playground of all different kinds of motives and intentions, and I think they understand that better than say you know, people who are uh, uh, you know didn't grow up like that. And then of course you know there's a lot of attempt to try to get platforms to be more responsible of, about what they you know, what they put out and what they allow out, and it's it's difficult because the business incentives for them you know, are to get clicks beside ads. And then they can sell the ads for more money, and that's just the it's it's a massive incentive for them to just not really filter too much what's up on their platforms. I read somewhere that about fifty percent of the clicks <laughs> come from real crap media sources. So if you ask Facebook to not to, to strip those out in favor of say authoritative sources, they're going to lose half of this stuff. So it's it's pretty hard. It's a pretty harsh demand. I mean, it's a reasonable one, but it's understandable. They resist it. I guess um, I'm sort of, I sometimes feel a bit stuck on the individual level. and I've been sort of dabbling in Zen Buddhism and that kind of thing. And it just So I feel like you know, it's an old story, Zen Buddhism, the idea of Buddhism itself, the idea of enlightenment and getting out of the wheel, right? And I feel like it remains compelling, at least to me, because it's sort of about you know when we talk about not being falling prey to misinformation and disinformation, we're talking about being having a little detachment, right? A little detachment from our desire, because disinformation and misinformation are going to tell us the way we things are the way we want them to be, the things are the way we crave them to be, right? Or could be, and so and Buddhism is about going. You know, watching yourself falling into various traps in, in a sense in your own mind of, of desire. So I, I sort of feel like that. And it's also I think Zen Buddhism especially is about getting out of the uh, the narrative really because the narrative is the past and the present and the future and it it links them together and it gives us a sense that you know we came from somewhere, we're going somewhere as people. there's a meaning to our lives based on what we can accomplish and what we can be part of and what we can change in the world i feel like we some of that hunger for narratives is that desire to feel that that there's change and that the change is good and that we're part of the change or or to or to you know at least get wrapped up about if it's bad change you know that we're we're ready to fight it but zen buddhism is like just get out of get out of past, present, future. If you if you sort of notice every time you think about the past and go, okay, well that's irrelevant because it's already happened. And you every time you think about the future and you go, well that's irrelevant because it's not going to turn out the way I think anyways. And you, you and you're stuck in the present. It's very very challenging. It's very very difficult to do that. It takes a lot of practice. I think you can you can get yourself possibly in a really different space where narratives come to seem a little bit less relevant because narrative is always going to say this is how things are going to go or this is how things went but if you go you almost have to go I don't care I don't I don't really care how things are going to go how are they right now what am I experiencing right now we'll get to later when we get to later it gives you a little bit more of a resistance to narrative but it's very much has to happen on an individual basis is the challenge right it's, I just think it's hard to, it's hard, it's not really a, a great scalable solution to get everybody meditating and detaching from their narratives. But that's what I guess the really great gurus are about, right? Getting individuals to take that step away from the wheel of narrative and just to be in the moment.
1: It would probably be really great if we could get a lot more people doing that, but we're trying to suck people back who are already buying into things like QAnon narratives. And trying to ship their beliefs sounds incredibly difficult.
0: Yeah. I think it's hard and I think that's why, like for my job it's, you know, can other actors who are more generally benign, a lot of our governments, you know, although they all get a bad rap, most of them and most of the people in them are mostly just trying to keep disasters from happening. For the most part, there isn't big nefarious plans that our governments are, you know, setting up for us. Can our governments produce better narratives about their value you know the values we share the goals we're aspiring to where do we want to be in in you know 2050 as a globe as individual countries as regions and I, I almost feel like climate change has made that harder to do because there is this sort of looming sort of threat and uncertainty well how do we tell a positive vision about say the I'm from Canada but the US in 2050 with all those maps that are saying that half of Florida is going to be underwater. There's almost like a difficult kind of casting a vision of the future that's optimistic and stable and comforting given I think the the threat of climate change which might be a little bit why all of you know our democracies are on a back on their back feet when it comes to narrative and are not telling very compelling, plausible stories or, you know, inspirational stories about what we can do together.
1: There were, I think, like three big judgments in the past week where I think Shell had one where they had to cut their emissions by half by like 2030 or 2050. I probably have the details wrong, but it was a significant change over not a whole lot of years. So maybe those sorts of things are the entry point for narratives where we say, this is where things started to change this is where we started to do things differently, where people made different decisions and we headed down this other path. Maybe those sorts of narratives could help people grab hold of something that's real and then point people to a brighter future from that.
0: I think that's necessary. Yeah. And I think we are really seeing more collective consensus around those sorts of actions. I guess you could call them climate actions. I've been a little bit nervous in the past that the that that the climate narrative will impel actions that are not going to be effective and are just going to be distracting you know, like some you know like the idea that if everybody does their little bit people i guess you know, her you know, that, that it'll make a big difference when what we need are policies right that sort of concern that the narratives can be wrong the climate act narratives can be wrong or you know, if we just build wind farms and you know solar panels everywhere, it'll be good enough. Well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But in a way, it really any positive, I guess you could call it heroic narrative that can be told from the climate point of view is definitely grab people and engage people in a hopeful way. I guess that's that, that's that missing element of hope. Can we, can we make a difference, right? Can we beat this beast before it? Maybe there could be policies that could make a difference that are worth fighting for and are worth believing in, and that, you, that, that even young people who are maybe disengaged could get excited about.
1: The Circular Design Lab stuff that I mentioned earlier, that's all about getting together with community members who are interested in working on systems problems. One of the interesting things we learned from that is all of us who started that effort are used to working on those sorts of things. We brought together people who cared deeply about those things, but a lot of them didn't seem to feel enabled to work on them. They may recycle, drive an electric car, and and whatever, but they seemed to feel like there was a limit to what they could do. But then they come to one of our programs and their perspective changes. You can tell them they're now free to engage on whatever challenge they want to address, and they dig in with some of their community members and try to make a difference something I'm trying to do with what we've learned from that is I'm trying to work with high schools because I want them going, well, of course I'm going to work on these my entire life. Haven't you seen the scale of the problems?
0: I think I've got something for you because I was thinking today about a literary theory. It's by a Canadian called Northrop Frye. And he said that he wrote about how there are four types of fundamental types of stories. And I think there are, and I think we all have a favorite, right? And so the romantic story is the story that environmentalists grab hold of, and it's that everything is terrible, but it can change, and then everything will be wonderful. And I feel like environmentalists are romantics, and they kind of drive me crazy, right? Because they exaggerate. They exaggerate the everything is terrible, and then they exaggerate the potential for change. And they exaggerate how wonderful it will be, you know, in the at the end. Okay, and, then, and they're contending with people who have different types of stories that they that they don't, they can't reach, right? And so one of the types, so this, the other type of story is comedy. And I feel like more conservative people are, com, are love are comedy um, aficionados. So in a comedy, there's a, some little ups and downs, but everything works out fine in the end. Nobody actually has to make any big changes. Right? It just sort of settles out, right? And I feel like a lot of us are just, and often the you know the healthiest among us are are lovers of comedy and we just feel like oh it'll probably be okay right and so we're not going to make any big changes we're not going to upset the apple cart in our lives we're not drawn to that kind of story uh, and then then we have to deal with the fact that there's tra- some people are just tragic natures right they just feel like something big's going to happen and there's nothing to be done about it and then finally, and I feel like a lot of the young people today are ironists. Irony is their story, which is that yeah, everything sucks. We know everything sucks, but it's kind of funny the way it sucks. And then you start to just get stuck there with memes, right? And so, and it's it's pretty. I mean, both of those two latter two are kind of fatalistic sort of stories. But they're, you know, they're comforting to you if that's the fundamental story you, you have in your head. And those are the stories you're going to look for. So I wonder if the, envir- the romantic environmentalists can try to figure out how to reach out to other people who have these other stories and speak to them, right, and draw them in.
1: Well, Susie, thank you for making time today. I learned some interesting things and have some stuff to dig in on and learn more about. And thank you for taking part in the book. I greatly appreciate it, and I wish you well
0: thank you very much, Chris. And thanks for all the opportunities. It's
1: been great. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was interesting and that it helped you see something anew. As an independent press, we can use all the help we can get reaching new readers and listeners. So please do share this for us. Also, what do we do about the pandemic will be available on July 4th. But if you're up for giving us a brief, honest review, you can pick up a free copy on booksirens.com. Thanks again for listening. video binger.